0: This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. Good evening, everyone. We have some, well, first of all, we have an assignment that I gave you last week, and I'd like to begin with that assignment. That assignment was uh, an examination of our creeds on the subject of sanctification, and particularly the need to take notice of the different terms which the confessions use to speak of the work of sanctification which God performs. Uh, There were three or four such terms, I could probably put them on the board. The term sanctification is used, for example, in the Belgic Confession. The term regeneration is used in the canons in the same sense of sanctification. And the term conversion is used both in the canons and in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 33 as referring also to the same work basically as is referred to in this term and this term. And your assignment was what is the idea behind that threefold terminology of our confessions when it refers to the same work of God, and how can we explain that? All right, I'm really quite concerned about this question because I think it's a question that is necessary to understand if we are going to understand our confessions. There's been a lot of confusion in uh, discussing these things from the viewpoint of our confessions because there are some of these things that are not understood. Now, there are two of them, one of which has been mentioned tonight and one of which has not. But let's remember that as is agreed upon by all Reformed theologians, the steps in salvation are these. Regeneration, calling. Now you understand this is not always the order which all of them follow. Hermann Boving, for example, puts calling before regeneration, but this is generally agreed upon and I think this is the order of salvation that Hermann Huxtma uses in his reform dogmatics. Regeneration, calling, faith, justification, and sanctification, and then finally, glorification. Those are the steps. Now, conversion isn't mentioned in there because conversion isn't usually included in this being implied in others. The other two terms are used. But this is what you have to remember when you're talking about this now. When God begins his work of grace in the heart of the elect sinner and regenerates him, which means brings him to new birth, implants in his heart the life of Christ, all of these are at that very moment also completed in principle. When God regenerates, he does that through his own irresistible calling. He calls things that are not as though they were also in the elect sinner. He implants the power of faith immediately. When a a child, a baby born in the line of the covenant, an elect baby born in the line of the covenant is regenerated, All of these things have taken place in the heart of that child already at the moment of it, even though he's not even aware of it. He has faith because faith is the bond that unites the elect sinner to Christ. And you cannot have any blessing of salvation unless you're united to Christ. So that baby has faith, not conscious faith, not faith which is manifested in believing, But the principle of faith, the bond that unites the believer to Christ, is justified. He's sanctified because that regeneration is holy. There is is no possibility of that principle of regeneration sinning. And he's even glorified. Paul, for example, in Ephesians 1, uses that expression, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places with Christ. He puts us in heaven just as soon as the blessings of Christ become ours. So in a sense, in a sense, when this takes place, they all take place. But as far as our experience of these blessings is concerned. That's a different matter. We experience them in some kind of an order. We experience regeneration when it comes to manifestation in our lives. We experience calling when we sit under the preaching of the gospel. We experience faith when we lay hold on Christ. We experience justification when by faith we believe that our righteousness is only in Christ and so on and so forth. So there is a certain order when it comes to our experience. But even then there is, as as one of you said, there is not this idea that We're regenerated and then God finishes that work and is done with it forever. And then he calls us and he finishes that work and he's done with it forever. And then he gives faith, nothing like that. In our own experience, all of these things are constantly present with us. Uh, Not all the time, not with equal strength, not certainly in perfection, but nevertheless, we know when we're called, we know when we believe, we know when we're righteous and so on and so forth. So you have to remember that first of all. In the second place, about these three terms, there are two points that have to be made. And the first point is this, that these terms are often spoken of in what is frequently called a narrow sense of the word and a broad sense of the word. I think probably Reverend Hoeksema in his reform dogmatics was the first not to make this distinction, but the first one to drive the point home that this is an important distinction. He made the distinction narrow and broad, especially in connection with regeneration. And when he made that distinction in regeneration, And you can find this in his Reformed Dogmatics. You can also find it in his uh, exegesis of 1 Peter, the last verses of chapter 1. By regeneration, in the narrow sense of the word, he says, it's the work of God which first begins the life of Christ in the heart of the elect sinner, the very first. He compares it to the birth of a child, although sometimes he compares it to conception, to conception. But the birth of a child, it's a new birth. It's a a birth that is worked by the Holy Spirit and that can never, never be undone. That's the creation of a new man in the heart of the believer. In the broad sense of the word, and this is how the canons use it, it's the continual work of God whereby he gives life to the elect believer, not only, but in the sense of that principle of regeneration growing, growing through spiritual childhood, growing to spiritual adulthood, and growing finally to complete maturity in the final glorification of the believer. That's the broad sense. In that sense regeneration takes place all our life. There was a a bitter, bitter controversy that took place in the reformed churches in the Netherlands from about the time of 1892, when the churches of the Ufskating and the churches under Kuiper merged into one denomination until the time of the split under Skilder in 1944. And the churches especially that followed Kuiper, made that distinction. And made that distinction in such a way that they said regeneration in the Narrow sense of the word is immediate, that is, without means, without the means of the preaching, while in the broad sense of the word, regeneration is immediate. That was such a bitter controversy that it really was one of the reasons why the liberated in 1944 under Skilder left the Greifmeerkerke. Uh, so, Huxma really adopted the position of Kuiper, although Kuiper had some other strange and erroneous ideas about regeneration that we won't go into tonight. Now, sanctification is also a process. As I said over here, when God regenerates, he sanctifies too, of course. Because that new man that God creates is a holy man John even says in his first epistle, he that is born of God cannot sin because he is born of God. And he refers, of course, to that new man that is born by the wonder of regeneration. That new man is sanctified. The believer has that new man his entire life, only That sanctification is a continuous work of God so that the believer grows in sanctification. As in regeneration, he grows from a baby, spiritual baby to spiritual child to a spiritual adult. So he grows in holiness too and must grow in holiness so that sanctification becomes an increasing reality in his life. But it means, this means to be born again, this means to be made holy. This is the same thing. You can speak of conversion in the narrow sense of the word, or in the broad sense. Conversion itself means to turn around. That's the literal meaning of conversion or to change into something different. I may, for example, uh, convert a piece of steel taken from an automobile into some kind of a, not I, I, I can't work that way, but into some kind of a beautiful clock on the mantle. It's converted from a fender of a car into a clock reworked. Conversion means really to turn around so that God takes the sinner and turns him around. He's facing the direction of sin. God takes him in the depths of his heart and turns him this way so that he's facing God. That's the idea of conversion in Scripture. In the narrow sense of the word, God does that in regeneration. But nevertheless, conversion is something that takes place all our life long, as the Heidelberg Catechism makes clear. In Lord's Day 33, because conversion in the broad sense of the word is the crucifying of the old man and the raising of the new man. So that every day the sanctified believer is converted because he's turned from his sin in repentance and sorrow for sin and turned towards God. So remember those two things. First of all, you can use these terms in a narrow and broad sense of the word. And secondly, they all, as some of you mentioned too correctly, they all give a different viewpoint to the one work of God. And look at it from uh, various viewpoints in order that we may appreciate the greatness and glory of it. Any question about that? I don't want to linger here, although we could talk about this longer because we should get on. Anyone? I hope that that brief explanation is helpful. From now on tonight, I'll move a little more slowly Now when the scriptures talk about sanctification and regeneration and conversion, they use different terminology. They use the terminology, for example, new man created in regeneration and old man. Heidelberg Catechism does that in Lord's Day 33. He use also the expression in 2 Corinthians 4, for example, a passage we're going to examine in detail next week. Inner man and outer man. Our outer man perishes. Our inner man is renewed day by day. This Old man or outer man is sometimes called flesh and it's sometimes called old nature, our old nature. This new man is called saint sometime in the Bible and various other things. Even on occasion you will find the word spirit used to refer to the new man, although that's very infrequent. This is what happens in regeneration, conversion, sanctification, and glorification. This is how we are by nature apart from the grace of God, as we were born from our parents in our first birth with all the corruption and depravity that is ours because we are children of Adam. This is where the conflict lies. The new man is sanctified. The old man is the old man of sin. And Romans 7, when it speaks of the struggle between the two is very, what shall I say, very dramatic, very forceful, and paints a picture of a bitter, bitter conflict. It's this that I want to talk about tonight. I want to do that, and I'm a little hesitant about doing that because this is a little bit difficult perhaps to understand, although I remember talking about this in Monday night Bible class at some length and the young adults there uh, not only were capable of grasping it, but even uh, asked a lot of very pertinent questions. In order to understand that, we first have to understand how God made man. And I'm gonna use for purposes of simplicity a series of concentric circles. This center here is a man's person. Now without going into detail on that, this is that part of man which is created directly by God at the moment of conception. That's unique with every individual. In all the billions and billions of people that have lived on the face of the earth, there are no two persons alike. Every person is unique, a unique creation of God, a unique creation of God so that every single individual has his own unique personality and character, even identical twins. Did you have a question? Oh, if any of you have a question, don't be afraid to raise your hand. I remember a story my dad told me when he was in Montana, he had a pair of identical twins in the congregation, young boys, they were teenagers, and and no one, in the congregation could tell them apart. They were identical and they liked to fool people too. They even, uh, after they both had girlfriends, they would even sometimes switch girlfriends and see once whether the girlfriends would notice that they were with the wrong twin. And sometimes the girlfriends didn't, but anyway, They would try to fool my dad in catechism. He would ask a question and say the name of one, and the other would answer. And the the interesting part of it was that my dad never made a mistake. He always, without fail, was able to tell the one from the other. And they asked him how he was capable of doing that, and he said, I'm not going to tell you, of course, because if I tell you, then you'll spoil it. Then I won't be able to tell anymore. But then when he took the call from Montana to First Church, the mother of these twins came to him and said, now you're leaving us anyway. Will you please tell us, how could you keep those twins apart? Nobody else could. Well, my father said it was a very simple matter. If you observed, their conduct then you would discover that invariably one of the twins took the lead. He would be the first one to come through the door of the catechism room. He would be the one that would choose where the twins would sit. He invariably took the lead while the other twin followed. So I found out which one took the lead, found out his name, never got it wrong. That was a difference in personality, that's why a mother can always tell her twins apart, no matter how much alike they are, even by their voice and by their conduct because each is a distinct and individual personality. God creates that. This I want to designate as the heart. Scripture talks a great deal about the heart That's an important part of how God created man. We'll come back to that, of course. The next circle is the soul. Now, in order to understand the soul, we have to understand two things about it. In the first place, the soul is composed of mind and will. The soul is the power that we have to think, to understand, to learn, to remember, to figure out things. All that requires intellectual exercises of any kind at all is the mind. The will is the power of choice. The will says, I want to do this, or I don't want to do this. It chooses. And this is, of course, a constant activity of every human being. He's constantly making choices of all sorts. Am I gonna brush my teeth tonight or am I going to skip it? Do I want oatmeal for breakfast or am I going to be satisfied with cornflakes or vice versa, as the case may be? His life is a life of choices. And of course, the fundamental choice of the will, and that's where Calvinism gets all Uh, It has its quarrel with Arminianism. The fundamental choice of the will is, will I serve God or will I serve Satan? That's fundamental choice. So the soul is the power of the mind and the will. And by the way, to the will belong all the emotions. They're an activity of the will. Love, hatred, compassion, sympathy, anger, joy, happiness, all the emotions, the whole gamut of of emotions are part of the will. And that's in itself an interesting subject, but I'm not going to talk about that. Second thing to remember is that the soul is composed of what the Bible calls a body, soul, and a spirit, those two, they're both parts of the soul. Paul uses the body-soul figure in 1 Corinthians 15. We have a soul body, Paul says. It's not translated that way in the King James, but the literal meaning is we have a soul body. Now the idea is this. The difference between these is this. That when God created man in paradise and that creation is described in Genesis 2, 7, God formed man out of the dust of the earth. When God formed man out of the dust of the earth, God formed man body and soul. Don't get that wrong, don't think he built a dirt man and then breathed on it and the the man came alive. That's not true. When God formed him from the dust of the earth with his own hands, man was a living soul, he was. And he could think and he could will and function in the midst of God's creation but That part of man's creation that is described in Genesis 2, 7, God formed man out of the dust of the earth, connected man to this earthly creation. He was a part of it. From dust thou art taken, to dust shalt thou return. You're a part of the creation. But because of the fact that he was given a a soul as part of it, He could see in the creation and understand in the creation what was happening about him, and so on and so forth. Part of the creation, the king of the creation, in fact. But when Genesis 2, verse 7 says, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, that means God gave man a spirit and scripture speaks all the time about that spirit, even in Ecclesiastes 12. And the spirit shall return unto God who gave it, Christ on the cross. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Not soul, but spirit. The spirit, in distinction from the body-soul, is also an aspect of the soul, But it's that aspect of the soul which sets man apart from all creation because that determines his relation to God. He's a creature created by God who stands in a relationship to God. Because he has a spirit, he can see the creation as the revelation of God. He can see God in the singing of the birds and hear him in the rustling of the wind. He knows that the creation is... God's word, the word of God's power, only because he has a spirit. Now, every man has a spirit. Every man makes no difference, whether he's a believer or unbeliever, because every man stands in a relationship to God, whether for good or for bad. And he cannot escape that. The atheist may say, there is no God, but he's a fool. He stands in a relationship to God and that relationship to God is one of defiance, of hatred, of enmity, of fierce bitterness, of determination to free himself from the sovereign control of God. He knows though deep down that he will have to give an account to God of his life. I had a very interesting experience with that once. I was in the hospital visiting a parishioner and he was, this parishioner was in a semi-private room with a, another man and the other man had had a very, very severe heart attack although he was re- relatively young. I doubt whether he was much over 45. And while I was reading scripture and talking, bringing the word to this parishioner, That other fellow ranted and raved and cursed and swore and said, get out of here, you blankety-blank preacher. We don't want your blankety-blank stuff around here to the point where I couldn't minister to the parishioner. I couldn't talk with him. And I thought to myself, that's strange, that's strange. Here's a man on the brink of the grave living on a powder keg and he lies there cursing God. How can that be? So I thought I have to investigate that further. So I went over to that man's bed and I started to talk with him and talked with him particularly about, in a rather quiet and subdued voice, about the holiness of God and about the righteousness of God and about God's demands upon men and about his justice, and so on and so forth, just in a very general way, emphasizing throughout God's infinite perfections. And all of a sudden, he he was cursing at me too while I was talking this way, trying to drive me out of the room, I guess, but I kept talking. All of a sudden, in a second he began to weep uncontrollably, his whole body shook with sobs. And I quit talking, in fact, I must admit I was scared silly because I thought that guy's gonna have another heart attack right here in bed, and what am I gonna do? And I really seriously thought about calling the nurses. And he sobbed and sobbed, and finally he got control of himself And this is what he said to me, this is a quote. You got what you wanted, didn't you? Get out of here. He knew, he knew, he knew he was going to have to give an account to God. And although he would not admit it, he was frightened, frightened out of his skin almost so i said to him yes but be quiet will you because i haven't prayed yet with my parishioner and he didn't say another word that's the spirit every man knows he stands in a relationship to god and so the soul consists of body and spirit this part of him of the soul The soul, I mean, the soul consists of the body, soul, and the spirit. This part of him relates to the creation. This part of him relates to God. And then you have the body. Now, I draw this in concentric circles, of course, because I don't know how else to illustrate it. But don't forget That when God finished the creation of man in Genesis 2-7, the text says, and man became a living soul, the whole of man, person, heart, soul, spirit, if you will, body. He was entirely in all his makeup and being, holy, a living soul. Created to serve God. Now, the fall does this. It is a total corruption of man at his very center. I ought to extend these a little bit. The heart. And so the whole man in its entirety, body, soul, spirit, heart, becomes depraved. That's the result of the fall. That's not a natural result of the fall, but that's a result of the fall which comes about because God punishes him with his just fury and anger. Depravity, total depravity, is the punishment of God against sin. We must not ever forget that. And so man is incapable of doing any good and inclined to all evil. Now the heart... Let me say that a moment too. And here I sort of have difficulty trying to explain what Scripture teaches concerning the heart. The heart is to the whole of man's nature. And by the way, this is all what Scripture calls nature. The nature of man. His body, his soul, his heart. That's man's nature. The person is distinct from the nature. You recall how that's true of the Lord Jesus. What is our confession concerning the Lord Jesus? That he is the person of the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. That he has two natures. Divine nature, that is a divine mind, divine will, divine uh, not a divine body, of course. God doesn't have a body, but the divine perfections of the divine being. And he has a human nature. And that human nature is a human body, a human soul, a human spirit. But he is the person of the Son of God. The same thing is true of us. This all is our nature, corrupt and depraved and incapable of good. Now, when God sanctifies a person, this is what happens. It gives him a new heart. That's what he does. When he regenerates, he gives a man a new heart. Scripture repeatedly uses that expression. A new heart. Now the heart, and here is where we come, in my opinion, to the crux of the matter. The heart is to the whole nature what an acorn is to an oak tree. I hope you understand that. When you pick up an acorn in your hand, you have the whole oak tree in your hand. And when that acorn begins to grow, it'll produce an oak tree. It won't produce a stalk of corn. Won't even produce an elm tree. Certainly won't produce a chicory plant, a chicory flower. Did you notice the chicory? It's just out, gorgeous, along the sides of the road chicory. The plant is ugly but the flowers are painted by God in a blue that seems to me impossible to imitate. It is a marvelous blue. There must be some parable in that too. An ugly plant, beautiful flower. Chicory has just been out the last week so pay attention. Anyway, it won't produce a chicory plant It'll produce an oak tree. And the oak tree, though it grows to a tree 60 feet high, with tremendously strong branches and all kinds of leaves and other acorns, doesn't contain one thing, which the old acorn did not originally contain. It all grew, it all became bigger, through the nourishment that the acorn received from the ground and from the sun and all the rest. But there isn't anything in that oak oak tree which was not in that little acorn. So it is with the heart of man. The heart of man is the whole of man's nature in a microcosm, in miniature It's the whole nature of man, body, mind, will, emotions, the whole man in miniature. Man never becomes anything but what is in the heart. From that point of view, as Solomon says in Proverbs, from the heart proceeds all the issues of life just as from an acorn all the issues of the oak tree proceed. But, and here's the point that you and I are interested in, the heart determines the moral spiritual character of the entire nature. When a man is regenerated, this is regeneration, When a man is regenerated, he is given a new heart. In the very depths of his being, in the center of his entire life, in what his nature is in miniature, he is made a new man. That's sanctification. That's regeneration, conversion. God takes a hold of that man in the depths of his being and turns him around, turns him towards him. That's a marvelous work. That new man that God creates in regeneration is a man that's going to live someday in heaven. It's a man incapable of sinning. It's a man perfect, complete, entire. Yes, question. The question is, if we are given a new heart, how come there's sin yet in us? And that was exactly the next point I was going to come to. All right, now what happens then in regeneration? A man receives a new heart. That's conversion. God turns that heart around. By the irresistible, sovereign, efficacious work of the Holy Spirit, in the narrowest sense of the word, we don't even know that it's happening. How can a baby know that he's being regenerated or is regenerated? That's impossible. But, as that spirit works in that man from the heart, something very marvelous and something very strange happens. And this is the answer to the question we just had. Man's nature remains totally depraved. We never may talk in this life of a regenerated or sanctified nature Paul doesn't either in Romans 7. Total depravity consists of a depraved body, soul, and spirit. The heart is regenerated. That's all. That's all. The rest is to come. That regeneration, that principle of life, eventually. We'll regenerate the spirit too, but that takes place when we die and when our spirits go to God, when that part of our souls goes to God. And our bodies will be regenerated too, but only at the final resurrection when Christ comes again. That principle of life works its way through the whole of man's nature, changes it, sanctifies it, transforms it, purifies it, makes it holy, but it goes on all our life and finally at death and the resurrection of the body completes its work. And that, by the way, is why Revelation 20 20 speaks of the first resurrection. On those who have uh, had a part in the first resurrection, on them the second death has no power. second death is hell, of course. But... Although that's true that the nature remains depraved in its entirety, this regenerated heart is so powerful because it's the work of the Holy Spirit, not our work, that the influences of that regenerated heart go through the whole nature and affect it all. not changing it yet in the sense of making it perfect that happens only at death and the resurrection but nevertheless having a profound influence on it i think i have used the illustration already maybe even here in hope i don't know but i've used the illustration already of a man who has a put a pit bull vicious trained to kill and has to be kept on a leash and controlled by a master who knows how to handle him. As far as our natures are concerned, they always remain a pit bull until death. But that regenerated heart acts on this depraved nature in two ways. In the first place, it acts like a leash that holds that depraved nature from doing the things that ordinarily it would do if it was given free reign. If the leash were cut, it holds the sinner back. And it doesn't only hold the sinner back like it holds a a worldly man back. He's held back too, not every Husband in in the world, unbelieving husband, commits adultery, of course. But he holds the sinner back, not like the law restrains sin from the outside, the fear of the policeman, but it holds the sinner back by creating in him a desire to do good, or if I may put it differently, that Holy Spirit in his work in regenerating the heart gives as the canon say to the regenerated Christian a new mind, not a mind that is still not totally depraved, but a mind that under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit can begin to understand spiritual things and can begin to memorize Psalm 23 as a little child already and can begin to love the word of God. Love, that's the will. It creates, it influences the will of man so that he begins to will the will of God. And that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 7. The good that I will, I do not. And the evil that I do not will, That I do, the will, the will is doing that which is pleasing to God. Not because its nature yet is changed completely, but because the Holy Spirit influences it. And those influences of the Spirit even extend to the body so that we can use the members of our body, as Paul says in Romans uh, 6. We can use our, the members of our body in the service of God. We can use our voices to pray and to sing. We can use our ears to listen to the word of God. We can, with our bodies, seek to help the poor and so on and so forth. And yet, you see, because that's God's purpose, although the Spirit influences the nature without fundamentally changing it, that influence of the spirit is still upon a depraved and corrupt nature. And so those influences which are holy, good, sinless, get twisted and turned in every direction by our sinful natures so that the heidelberg catechism can say with profound understanding and every christian will say is true even our best works are corrupted and polluted with sin they're good works don't ever forget it they're good works but they're not perfect by any means Because the Spirit's work is imperfect? Oh, no, 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 no. That work is always perfect, but because of our corrupt natures that we keep all our life long. And that's why the Heidelberg Catechism in another Lord's Day, and it's these things which make that Heidelberg Catechism the precious gift that it is. In in this case, in Lord's Day 21, Question and answer 55. What do you mean by the forgiveness of sins? That not only all my sins are blotted out for the sake of Christ, but that also my sinful nature, sinful nature, against which I struggle all my life long is forgiven by God. That's what I mean says the Catechism, by forgiveness of sins. That's a marvelous truth. And so, this is sanctification. Want to know what sanctification is? This is what it is. Begins in regeneration, goes on all our life long. It's finally perfected at the time we die, when we go to heaven. We won't sin in heaven, of course. And when our bodies are raised at the end of time. That's sanctification. Now, I want to make a few remarks about that. And then next week we're going to talk about how suffering is sanctifying because suffering, Paul says in Second Corinthians 4, gradually puts that old man to death. That outer man, my outer man perishes, Paul says, while my inner man is renewed day by day. And he says that's the effect of suffering. And that's what we're going to talk about next week, the Lord willing. Now I want to make a few remarks about this. In the first place, It is wrong to say that that the elect regenerated sinner is totally depraved. That's wrong to say. It's wrong to say as I mentioned before, as one man mentioned to me after a sermon that I had preached in which I had admonished the congregation, ya domini, that's all right, but you're forgetting I'm totally depraved. I, had, I could answer him only in one way. No, you're not. Don't say that. You're not. You are an elect, regenerated, sanctified child of God. And if he says, yes, but I sin, my answer is, of course, of course. You sin. God isn't going to transform your nature now. Why not? Well, if he would transform your nature now, whether that be your soul or your spirit or your body, you'd go to heaven. You'd have to go to heaven. You'd be higher than the angels. You can't live here on earth in a sanctified, a holy, perfect, sanctified state That's reserved for our glory only in heaven. If God would sanctify our bodies now, they would be heavenly bodies, spiritual bodies, bodies that couldn't live here on earth. And the same thing is true of our minds and our wills. So that, first of all, In the second place, God accomplishes that work of sanctification only through the preaching of the gospel. He doesn't just do that. That is, he doesn't take a sinner and gradually, apart from any means, make that sinner better and better. He uses the means of the word. Or to put it in a little different perspective to drive the point home, the Holy Spirit who works in the heart of the child of God ties himself in an unbreakable tie to the Word. If you don't don't teach that, you go off in the direction of mysticism. And that miserable doctrine that you can't have any assurance. The Holy Spirit works through the preaching. The preaching is the means of the grace of sanctification. There is none other. Now, I know, of course, there are exceptions to that. And those exceptions are mentioned in the Westminster Confession. There are the exceptions of infants that die in infancy, who are elect infants who are immediately transformed. There are instances of severely retarded children who have no contact with the word at all because of the limitations of their minds. God works in them in a special manner, although there's a work of the spirit in the hearts of such a child and Christian instruction and preaching and so on can have a more profound effect upon them than we often realize, as well as on a baby. When I was in Dune and minister in Dune, the mothers always took their babies to church right from the time they were capable themselves of going. And there were sometimes four or five howling babies in the audience during the worship services. and. The consistory said to me, we ought to have a nursery to get those wailing babies out of the auditorium, and I said, no, no, let's not do that. I would rather have those babies in the auditorium, and I would rather be bothered by a bit of crying, sometimes a whole lot of crying, because those babies, too, must hear the word. And you and I are incapable of judging how that word and the worship of the congregation has an effect upon an infant child. Worldly psychologists admit that outside influences affect children for good or bad. When we're talking about the work of the spirit, the irresistible, powerful, divine work of the spirit, can't that spirit work in the heart? Of a little child sometimes i baptize babies and that cold water falls on their foreheads and they are looking me right in the eye with big big black eyes and they never let out a peep and it's almost as if they're saying to me i know what you're doing you're not doing anything to me which is not important it's almost that way God can work in mysterious ways. What I'm emphasizing now is the Spirit works always through the Word. Not only from the beginning and then after a bit, the Spirit sort of slacks off, so to speak, The whole work of sanctification, including our death, is the work of the Spirit. Including the resurrection of our bodies is the work of the Spirit. When Christ comes, as he talks about in John 14, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am there ye may be also. That's the spirit. Christ comes by his spirit. And in the arms of the spirit, we are carried to glory and purified in our spirits by the work of the spirit that continues through death into glory. And that spirit remains somehow mysteriously, wonderfully in our bodies that turn to dust and that are sometimes scattered to the four winds of heaven. And when Christ comes again and gathers his church, the bodies of the saints, the spirit collects, as it were, all the diverse parts of that body spread throughout the globe and puts them together and transforms them by an astonishing and mighty work and makes them like unto the body of Jesus Christ. The Spirit, the Spirit is the author. In the third place, as long as we are on this earth, there is growth in sanctification and must be. That's a puzzling thing. I think I quote Burkauer in these notes, and what Burkauer says about the growth in sanctification is true, I agree with it 100%. I have told some of you before, and I'm going to use the same illustration again because to me it was a powerful illustration. When I was a young man and going to Young Men's Society, we began bringing the sermons to the shut-ins on recordings. These recordings were not M1 players or M2 or whatever they are. They were not cassette tapes. They were not CD discs. They were wire recorders. Each recorder weighed in the neighborhood of 70 pounds that we carted around to the shut-ins. They loved it when we stayed to talk because many of them were lonely and had only an occasional pastoral visit because the congregation was some 600 families. And so they wanted us to stay and we frequently did. They never talked about current events or the weather. They wanted to talk about spiritual things and that was a great blessing to us to hear these ancient saints ready to go to glory speak of the experiences In life how God worked his salvation in them of their in the midst of their trials but what struck me was and there is no exception to this that I can recall and I visited a lot of old people without exception every single saint said the older I get the greater sinner I become that bothered me no end until I was on the verge of desperation. I looked at these old saints as being the epitome of godliness and possessing a holiness to which I could only aspire in my imaginations. And yet everyone kept telling me all the time, the older I get, the greater sinner I become. Finally, and this was born out of desperation because my dad was unbelievably busy, I thought I'd better talk about it with him. I don't understand this. And so I asked him about it and I said, are those people just simply expressing some false piety? by talking about how increasingly sinful they become and my dad said, no, no, no. But he said, and that's one of those paradoxes, ironies of the Christian faith, the fact that they talk that way, my father said, is evident, evidence of their growth in sanctification. That kind of talk is evidence of becoming increasingly holy. He explained that to me that was driven home in a sermon I heard from Reverend Herman Huxma I can't recall the text I can't recall what else was in the sermon but he made this comment in the sermon that has lived with me. The most perfect manifestation of sanctification in the life of the child of God is sorrow for sin. And that's a quote. It was a good thing I had talked with my dad because it fell into place and it all became a clearer picture. And as I became older, I saw how true that was. Growth and sanctification is not measured in God's scales by mighty deeds and earth-shaking events, by revivals and turning multitudes to Christ, by bringing about bizarre and unspeakably crazy actions by those who are supposed to be moved by the spirit and suddenly brought to conversion. God measures the growth of sanctification in these ways in the hearts and lives of his people. They come to understand sin better. They come to understand the power of sin, the ugly, ugly power of sin. They come to understand that sin is an enemy of such proportions and of such dangerous powers that to play with it is asking for trouble. They come to understand that they are capable of the most heinous crimes that their natures are so corrupt that there has not been committed a sin since Adam till today of which we are not capable and our natures are not capable of doing. We come to understand that as our life goes on The mountain of our sin and the mountain of our guilt grows until we cry out with David in Psalm 25 as old saints, Lord, remember not the sins of my youth. They're forgiven, of course they're forgiven. I know they're forgiven, but the folly of them, the wickedness of them, the horror of them, the shame of them, I carry to the grave because sin is a terrible thing. We come to understand better that the justice of God demands of us eternal death, but that Christ has borne it all and what that means. And we come to understand that that forgiveness is complete and perfect and that God has in store for us a transformation of our natures that describe that, that is impossible to describe in its glory and beauty. We shall be higher than the angels by the work of sanctification. God does that for us through the power of the cross, and when all those things live within our souls. And every night we get down on our knees and plead with God for forgiveness and bewail our foolishness, our worldliness, our constant tendency to stray. And see, shining through the darkness of the night of our sin, the light the mercy and grace of Almighty God in Jesus Christ performed in us what a wonderful blessing that is how can we ever be thankful enough that's sanctification in the meantime and let me say this yet in the meantime the battle is hot we are called to fight and The battle is not an easy one because our enemy is the devil and his hosts. I am sure that each one of us has been assigned a devil sent under the orders of Satan to do all in his power to drag us into hell. and satan has all the advantages on his side and the greatest advantage he has is this that i have a nature that wants nothing so much as to cooperate with satan and assist him in his nefarious plans and in his dastardly deeds my nature Reaches out to Satan and says, ah, this is my desire. He gives me what I want. He gives me what I'm going to have. And yet, the spirit in the work of of sanctification says, no, you don't want that. That's deadly. That's poison. That's the road to hell. And so real is that in me that even when I willingly cooperate with Satan at the same time, I will to damn him to hell and curse him for all he does to me. Both. When Uxma was talking about Romans 7 in class one time in that marvelous passage, Spoiled by the Arminians. Huxma said the the sanctified Christian really is a spiritual schizophrenic. On the one hand, he loves God, he wants to serve God. On the other hand, he wants the world with all its sin and lust. They're both there. They're both there all the time. That's the battle. That's the battle to which there is no end. That's the battle from which there is no escape. Sometimes, sometimes, we almost surrender in the battle, do we not? What's the use? I don't care. And the work of the Spirit seems to have disappeared from our hearts and from our lives. Those are desperate times. But God will give us no peace in those moments when we have given ourselves over to the lusts of the flesh. And there is always that nagging, uncomfortable, damning voice in us, this is not right. This is not what you ought to be doing. This is dragging you away from God. What is better than the sunshine of God's Favor, and he forces us to our knees oh my God I have sinned I'm sorry I'm sorry not once not a thousand times but a thousand times a day that's the sanctified sinner and this in conclusion We must not look at this sanctified sinner who is you and I as a man in whom there are two principles, the principle of the new man and the principle of the old man and that the battle that goes on between them is between two forces. The outcome of the battle sort of hanging in the balance. There is only one principle in the regenerated child of God and that's the principle of the work of the spirit and of a new heart and the result is that the principle of the old man of sin can never win that's impossible is the devil stronger than Christ Is my sinful nature stronger than the Holy Spirit? There are times I wish it was, but the Holy Spirit changes that too and makes us willing, joyfully willing to do his will. But this is the battle. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? But the principle is, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. We are victorious. We are conquerors more than conquerors. In life's darkest moments, in the blurring, crushing reality of sin, when we flee to the cross. We win, because there is the power of God. And so, we don't lie down on the side of the road in our pilgrim's pathway and say, it's too hard, it's too difficult, I can't make it, I can't go another step. But when we fall, bruised and beaten and weary beyond description, we get to our feet again. And we say, I will go on. By the power of my Christ, I will go on as I pursue my way to our everlasting destination, the house of our Father. And I will go on in the confidence. And now let me quote the verse that Henry quoted. In the confidence that he who has begun a good work in me will finish it until the day of Christ come what may he will finish it that's our hope let's pray together Heavenly Father we are thankful beyond our ability to express it that we may confess together tonight that although we are very very great sinners And although we deserve nothing but thy judgment, we do have Christ and the mighty work of sanctification thou hast performed within our hearts that works irresistibly and powerfully and marvelously to transform us from deadly sinners to gloriously beautiful saints. Thou doest that for us. How can we ever be thankful enough for that, Lord? We're going to heaven someday. We're going to be higher than the angels. We're going to be like Christ himself. We're going to live with thee in the intimate fellowship of thy covenant, all because of thy work, all because of thy sovereign electing love, because of the gift of Christ, because of the irresistible power of the Holy Spirit who is in us now and will always be in us not only through all of life, but through death and into eternity in heaven. Because the battle is fierce and strong and continues every day, renew our spirits, revive our courage, and above all, O God, give us joyful willingness to be obedient to thy commandments here in this life and when we sin bring us to repentance and forgive and carry us when we are wounded and bleeding in thy almighty arms ever forward ever upward ever near our everlasting home We praise and bless thy holy name. We must ask for forgiveness also for the sins we have committed tonight. We know thou dost forgive. Give us the assurance that we are righteous in Christ before thee. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.